So this morning is 1 Corinthians 15. It is the chapter in the Bible that is looking specifically at the resurrection. And by that, I mean, what are the effects of the resurrection? What will that look like? Why did it happen? And then what will it look like even for us? Now, we don't have time to read the entirety of it this morning. So what we're going to do is to read it in some sections uh, as, we, uh, as we go along. So if you have your Bibles, and if you are physically able, would you stand as we read just this front section here of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and it will go through just the first uh, four uh, verses. That's Second Corinthians. <laughs> right. Hear from the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You may be seated. Paul is writing here, and he's writing in particular to an audience that has been heavily influenced by Greek philosophy and ideology. Now, why is that important for this particular section? If you remember, the book of 1 Corinthians was written to what might possibly be the the most jacked-up church in the history of the world. Paul spends the first six chapters in writing to this group of people not even addressing the questions that they actually asked him about. He spends all this time saying, you guys are believing some really, really out there weird stuff. And so I've got to address that first before I can even talk to you about what you want to know about. So throughout church historians really believe this, probably the most jacked up church that we've ever seen. You think our church is jacked up. You think the church down the street is jacked up. It's not Corinth. Now, In that, they had this influence of Greek philosophy. And what was going on in large quantities is they were saying, hey, we don't know exactly what happened to Jesus, but here's what we know did not happen because it cannot happen. And that is we know that he did not come back from the dead. So we don't know if he didn't die or we don't know if if he died, if if somebody mistook something, if they stole the body. But, But here's what we do know. There's no way Jesus actually died and then came back from the dead. Now, why did they say that? Because that just doesn't happen. So that's why we think it didn't happen. I don't know how many people you personally have interacted with that you have seen die on a Friday and come back to life on a Sunday. I personally have never been a part of it. I don't know that individual. So it's, it's understandable why people would have this particular mindset. We all make presuppositions, do we not? We all have things in our life that we say, I'm not going to believe that because I just can't believe that. Well, why can't I believe that? Because I can't. Here's what I love about those who would claim to be open-minded, you'd say, look, if I'm open-minded, i got to say that there are a lot of possibilities that are outside of my realm of knowledge. Paul is writing to him here, writing to this group of people and saying, you've been in this church 
You've been saying you want to know more about Jesus and follow Jesus. You want to pattern your life after Jesus and you like his philosophy, you like his behavior, etc. I'm telling you, um, there's a basic tenet about him. And that is that he was dead and he came back to life. And so now here's the question. Why does it even matter? What did it matter for those in Corinth in this day and age? What does it matter for us in our day and age? What does it matter if we do or even don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Can't I be a Jesus follower and not really believe in his resurrection? Well, the resounding answer from Paul, according to the scriptures, is no. I can't be a follower of Jesus. I can be a fan of Jesus. I can admire Jesus. I can, can uphold you. I can say, man, this guy has a lot of things that are worth emulating, but I wouldn't be considered a follower of Jesus. So he starts out this section here with the basic gospel. We won't spend a tremendous amount of time. He says, I just want to remind you of this. It's the gospel that I preach to you. It's what you're now standing in, meaning it's what is upholding you. Um, And and by the way, it's something that you have gotten in the past. It's something you're getting right now. And it's something you will continue to get into the future of this gospel message because we never outgrow the simple gospel message. What is it? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So here's the basic gospel, ready? God made it all. Everything that's in existence, God made it all. And at the end of every day, he said, it is good. In particular, when he made man, man and woman, he said, it is very good. He made us with something called moral ability. Adam and Eve had moral ability that was pleasing to God. Here's what happened. In the garden, they decided they wanted to get away from God's reign and rule as Lord and King over the entire universe. We're going to take matters into our own hands. When they did that, it broke the relationship. It broke the fellowship with them. And here's what they lost. They lost it all. They didn't lose some of their moral ability. They lost all of their moral ability and goodness. Incapable of getting it back incapable of returning to a state of perfection. And this was the problem God had said, in order to have a relationship with me, you actually have to be perfect, not just good. You have to be perfect. He made it all. We lost it all. I don't know how many thousands of years later. We really don't know. There's a time frame in Genesis. It could have been 4,000 years. Could have been, I don't know how long. But there was some time that happened in which Jesus then comes to the earth and Jesus does what Adam and Eve could not do, what every other human being, what you and I cannot do, and that is to live a life in actual perfection. Every thought, word, deed, and motive was in perfection. It fulfilled all of the law of God. So in other words, he did it all. God made it all. We lost it all. He, meaning Jesus, did it all. Jesus didn't do just some of the, of, of the work. He did all of the work. Now to all who turn their attention towards him, place no hope in and of themselves whatsoever. To all who say, it's all about what Jesus has done, is doing, can do. When we place all of our hope there, it says, to all who come to me, I, I will give them right to become the children of God. It is surrendering the controls of our life over to God, saying, God, I I have placed no hope in me. I'm placing all of my hope in the person of Jesus. Guess what we get in return? We get it all. 
all of Jesus's moral ability. So now when we, by faith, come to Jesus, we have the ability to relate to God. He made it all. We lost it all. He, God, uh, Jesus, did it all. And then in return, we get it all through faith. That is the basic gospel message. Paul says, you've got this. Now, I keep hearing from some of you, you just can't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. We won't walk through it, but he says what happened was he actually came back to life on Sunday. He appeared to many people, showed up, and did uh, some pretty incredible things, like eat a meal. So we know it wasn't a ghost. It wasn't a figment of someone's imagination, according to the historical records. Uh, whether or not you believe those is a different issue. But for right now, the historical records record that Jesus actually came back to life, was seen by various and sundry people, ate ministered, walked, etc., so that people could feel him, they could touch him. This was a real person. So he's resurrected from the dead. So the first question that he answers in there for this group of people, the first of four basic questions is, was Jesus raised from the dead? Please note this. Paul does not spend a tremendous amount of time trying to prove that Jesus was raised from the dead. He just said he was raised from the dead. So... Question number two that the people are um, asking, will people then be raised from the dead? Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 5. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Meaning, how can we say that once our life is done, it's just simply done? We just fertilize daffodils at that point. Life is over. Our main purpose at that point is to serve the earth as we decompose. How can some of you say that? If Christ was raised, then wouldn't we also be raised? Verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, this is why the resurrection matters. If we're just fans of Jesus, if it's just there's this religious leader that did some really good things, if he wasn't raised from the dead, then guess what? I have a rather useless job. What I have the privilege of doing, and it really is a privilege of coming and talking and teaching about what this particular book has to say about life and the way things ought to be and et cetera. My job is basically a waste of everyone's time if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. So what's he saying? Since he has been raised from the dead, my job matters. It's not more important than yours. My job is not the only good job to have. In fact, once we get to heaven, I hope you realize that I lose a job. There's going to be some level of continuity and discontinuity in heaven. Don't understand all this, but some of you, I believe, will carry on the same type of work that you've been doing here. Many artists, I think, will carry on the same kind of work in heaven they're doing now. They're just going to have full access to your brain. All of your creative power and juices will be put into it. That's going to be cool to see what you come up with. But guess what? Pastors, we're out of jobs. Because God's not in heaven saying, hey, Dave, could you come give a devotional? You know, it's not really there. Like instead, just my job is to continue to point us towards the person of Jesus to put all our hope there. Well, nobody needs... Anyone to point anyone to Jesus? He's there. He's living amongst us, walking, breathing. So preachers lose their jobs. Doctors lose their jobs. No more broken bones. Please keep doing what you're doing now. It's very helpful just for the McNeely family alone. 
There's going to be some level of continuity. There's going to be some level of discontinuity. But what he's saying is, right now, my job matters. It's not just me as a preacher. It is your reading of the word. Please hear me. I know sometimes you may think, all right, is it really going to make a difference if I get up at some ridiculous hour of the morning or stay up or come in the afternoon or whatever, and I just start making my way through this thing? Because sometimes, let's be honest, when we start reading this, we get reading, and then about a minute in, I'm thinking about the grocery list that I've got to get. I'm thinking about the other kid I've got to pick up, or I'm thinking about the ball game that I'm going to be playing or the ball game that was played. In my case, I think about ball games that we lost that I'm still stewing over in there. We get distracted. Does it really matter if I even read this? Does it matter if I even pay attention on Sunday mornings? Does it matter if I pay attention upstairs in the, in the student ministry? Does it matter if I read scripture and put it on some sort of a hashtag challenge? Do any of these things actually make a difference? Yeah. Yeah, they do. And if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then man, you're just spinning your wheels. And this is just another book. And Paul eventually is going to say, you'll see it here, but don't waste your time if Christ didn't rise from the dead. But since he rose from the dead, it is not a waste of your time. Can I say this? Please don't ever think that the mundane, everyday, normal reading of the scriptures that you go through week in and week out, don't ever think it's useless. You may not feel the effects of it in the moment, But I assure you of this, God says this thing will not return void. So read it. Get to know it. Listen to even hacks like me preach about it. Go down to verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then your faith is futile. It had serves no purpose whatsoever in this lifetime. You ever heard folks say, uh, my faith got me through this? I understand what they mean by that. I don't want to be the, the word police on this, but, but I do want to offer that your faith never gets you through anything. God gets you through stuff. Jesus gets you through stuff, but faith itself doesn't get you through anything. Faith is just the trust that somebody else is going to get you through something. So it's the object of your faith that matters. Faith in and of itself is not what's most important. It's the object of the faith. What he's saying is if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, your faith is useless. It's futile. Because you're hoping in a guy that is like any other religious leader. But since he did rise from the dead, your faith isn't futile. So let's say it this way. Have you ever in your pilgrimage felt like your faith was about this small? You thought, I I don't know if I believe really anything. I mean, substantive meaning. I don't know that I could get through a whole lot if God were to give me some particularly challenging circumstance. Because my faith is really really tiny. And I look over here at Susie and Susie has large faith. And John over here, John has really huge faith. And I see how he handled this scenario and situation. And if I'd have been given that scenario and situation, I don't think I could have gotten through it because my faith 
his faith, my faith, her faith. Here's what Jesus says. Your faith, the size of a mustard seed, can move mountains. It's not even the size of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith. So your faith isn't futile because Jesus was actually raised from the dead. So when you think, when you fret, when you particularly condemn yourself thinking, I'm just not great enough, I'm just not grand enough, I'm just not committed enough or passionate enough or devoted enough or et cetera, just remember it's not about what you have done or, or, or can do. It's about what he has done and he is doing. Our preaching has value and benefit. Your faith has value and benefit. You are not still in your sins. Here's what Paul means by that. It means that when people die, those that die apart from Christ are dying because the punishment for sins is going to be meted out. God is a God of love and God is a God of justice. Those two things are not opposed to one another. They are complementary to one another. And so here's what God says. Sin is going to be punished. It is either going to be punished on the person of Jesus. All of my sin is either going to be put on Jesus or my sin is going to remain upon me. And the price for sin is death. So it's either eternal death because of what I have earned or it's eternal life because of what Jesus has earned. Paul says if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, if he hasn't come back to life, then, then, then uh, we, we, we're still in our sins. And those who have gone before us have died They just died in their sins and the eternal wrath of God is going to be poured out upon them. But he did rise from the dead. And there is no longer, therefore, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You cannot outsend the cross. Can I say it this way? I have never in my life met a believer who does not struggle with their own shame. We know what we have done. We feel it. My wife has felt my sin. My kids have felt my sin. My church has felt my sin. My neighborhood has felt my sin. We could go on and on. Everywhere, people have have had to experience the results of my sin. And I am keenly aware of that. And I hate that. And there is a natural tendency in us all to focus in on what it is that we have done or not done that is wrong. And Paul says, sometimes the weight of that shame is overwhelming. But, but Christ has made it such that you cannot out the cross. No matter what sin you commit in the future, those who are in Christ, that sin, it's like those magnets, you know, that you try to do on the same side. It's Teflon, man. Sin is not going to stick to you. It goes to the person of Christ. If he wasn't raised from the dead, then I've got to live with this weight and this burden, knowing what it is that I have done since he has been raised. I get to rest, not that it's okay, not that it doesn't matter what I've done, but I get to rest knowing that God has taken care of it. God is sovereign enough to use um, all things. So we are not still in our sins. Um, We are not died 
and then uh, gone uh, forever. Here's in essence what Paul is saying in this passage. That Christians above any other people group should be pitied, meaning condescended towards, if Christ has not been raised from the dead. The better option would be to eat, drink, and be merry. Rather than placing my hope in some guy that we claim lived and then died and then came back to life. Next question that he asks in here. Go down to verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? Christ is raised. Every person will be raised. I'm in there. Those that are in Christ will be raised for eternity. Those that are that are outside of Christ, their bodies will be raised, and they will have a body that will be fit for eternal destruction. But what, is, what kind of a body we have? How are we going to be raised? Here's what he says. You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. I'm skimming down to verse 44. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If therefore a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. I'm only going to say two primary things about what Paul says in here in terms of uh, of the body. One little caveat to the timeline, but uh, two things that he says here about the body. There's not a whole lot that we know. In other words, I can't speak dogmatically about much of anything in this particular passage. Here's what it does seem to be saying, though, that I feel fairly confident about. Number one, we will have a unique body. And by unique, I mean that it will be unique to every other creature that has ever been in existence. There will be similarities, just as we see now. There's similarities between you and between me. We have similar things, but none of us are exactly alike unless you are an identical twin. And if you are an identical twin, you are the exception to this passage. You don't disprove this passage. We are going to have a unique body. He goes on to describe later on that there's different types of things. And so you've got some things that are fit for here and some things that are fit for animals. We are going to have unique bodies, meaning probably won't lose that unique fingerprint that we have. You know, the one that God gave you and you only. Your specific coat. The way that God has wired you, put you together, is going to be unique to you. Lots of similarities to everyone else running around, but yours is going to be unique. Here's the other thing that we know. It's going to be an everlasting body, meaning that it is going to have no end. Do you remember being three? If you do, you have a phenomenal memory. and should go on like game shows and stuff like that. You're probably going to be uh, winning lots of money. If you can remember going back then, you were not thinking primarily about what your body couldn't do. So my three-year-old, one of my uh, three at the time he's there, saw us playing in the pool, and he thought it was going to be a great idea to come join us in the pool. The problem was he did not have swim lessons at that point. But this kid is not thinking about the limitations of his body. He's thinking about all the possibilities of fun. So he sees us playing and he comes, runs, and jumps into the pool. And with a smile on his face and eyes wide open, the water does this. 
smile still there, breathing in water. I pick him up. I pull him out. He's, <coughs> there's water coming out. No, all that stuff. Put him over there. And I thought, this would be good. This kid will learn. He's got it. It probably scared him. Put him over there. Let him go. Back in the water. I'm throwing another kid around. Three times. It's all right. Swim lessons. They start now. So when we're th- we don't think about the limitations of our body. That's what heaven's going to be. We're not going to think about the limit because you know why? There's not going to be limitations in the same way that we have them here. Are there going to be some limitations? I have every reason to believe there will be some limitations. But get this. It seems to indicate that our bodies are going to in some way mirror the resurrected body of Jesus. Now, what did that body do? This is really cool. It walked through a wall. Now, is that the God card that he's pulling? I don't know. Is that something only Jesus can do? I'm tend, I tend to think that this is going to be what we're sort of like. Jesus went from one space to another. Like not Star Trek, like disintegrating. This aura, like just boom, boom, there he's there. I hope that we can do that. I can't say for sure, but it seems as though scriptures indicating our bodies will have that kind of capability. I have every reason to believe that we will still eat. I sure hope we will still eat. <laughs> food is going to be enjoyed. I know that some of you in here are nutritionists and you understand exactly what food does to the body and when and all that. I can tell you this. This is from Second Opinions 7-3 in which <laughs> donuts will be the protein in heaven. Yeah, whipped, whipped lard with sugar is going to be good for us. It will unclog the arteries in our heart that we had. To, we are going to have these bodies that are capable, get this, of incredible production. Now, I know right now you say, that's the last thing I want in heaven is a lot of production. I just retired three months ago, Dave. Appreciate that thought. We're going to work in such a way to say, we get to go to work. And we're going to make things and create things and build things. And, and, and it's all going to matter. We're not going to have a bust. We're not going to have a business rollout that we think this is going to be the greatest thing. The customers are going to thrive with this. And then it just is a big dud. What we create and make is going to be useful It's going to be incredible. Our bodies are going to be capable of production in a way that we can't even fathom right now. Will we get tired? Probably. Because I think that'll be one of the limitations within our body. Probably we'll get to sleep. I hope so because I like sleep. We will be capable of amazing. And here's what Paul says in there. Man, if Jesus did not come back from the dead then none of that's true. And we don't have anything really to look forward to. We don't, we don't have anything we're going to look forward to create. Let's just do everything that we can right now. Let's try to get as much out of life as we can right now because this is it. It's all we got. But since we do have this to look forward to and knowing that there's going to be some level of continuity and discontinuity, some of the things that we make now will, will stand in heaven. 
Perhaps some of the things that we build now, you, you'll see again. Maybe, maybe in you know, 40 million years from now, you're walking along the west bank of the Crystal Lake and you decide, hey, I want to get back over to Tallahassee. I remember that time over there. And so you get back and you say, I remember when my, my son and I built this together. And still standing. I don't know. Paul tells us we're going to have everlasting bodies. We're going to have unique Bodies, and they're going to be bodies that are, that are similar to Jesus's, eerily similar to his. Now the question will come up, and it doesn't address it specifically in here. I think he addresses it in general in here. The question is this, are we going to know people in heaven? Absolutely. And somehow or another, and I don't know how this is going to work, but somehow or another, everything Every person that you valued and cherished that is in Christ, somehow or other you're going to be able to recognize and interact and remember and exalt and praise and worship and et cetera, all of that simultaneously. I don't understand how all of that's going to work. But I do know that right now, many of us right now in this room have thought about someone we can't wait to see. Looking forward to it. It's going to be a tremendous reunion. I tend to think that I'm going to have an opportunity to see my grandfather, my mother's father. It's a guy that had a great career, um, uh, in, insanely bright. Um, uh, I, I tend to think that I'm going to be able to get to see him as his second career was in ministry. And uh, some of the mysteries that I'm wondering about right now, things that ultimately don't matter, like true mysterious kind of thing. I think he's going to grab me by the hand and we're going to have a chance to sit down and talk. Let me explain it to you. But first, let's go see Jesus. Let's go hang out with him. Some of you will be reunited with children and spouses and dearest of friends and parents, etc. You're going to see it. And if Jesus didn't come back from the dead, then none of that would be true. But since he did, we'll experience it. And so our relationships here matter. How we live and interact and treat, one another, it, it matters. Finally, down in verse 50, it says this, I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Verse 53, for if the imperishable, imper, I'm sorry, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. He spoke to us in here about the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the people. He's now talked about the nature of the resurrection. Now he talks about simply closes chapter out with the necessity of the resurrection. Why does there have to be a resurrection? And he gives this illustration um, in there earlier in which he talks about this seed that goes into the ground and, and the seed has to die first. And then the seed, once it dies, actually grows. And, and what starts out as a tiny little seed will eventually end up becoming a rather large giant forest. But the seed is just this big and it goes into the ground. But unless this seed loses its life, then there's going to be no significant life that will occur after that. 
I think he's referring to the person of Jesus who goes into the ground. He's buried into the tomb. And it is his life when he is raised that produces life for all who will come to him. Why do our bodies have to be changed? Because this right here is tainted with sin. We're feeling the effects of the fall. And God's going to give us something different, something unique, something eternal, something powerful, something spiritual, but something that is specifically designed for all of eternity. Now, this is where we close because I want you to see this. This is the ultimate for Paul as to uh, why we do this, and this is what matters. Go down to verse uh, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Other religions of the world that have dead leaders have great philosophies and ways in which they want to benefit um, uh, humanity. I, I don't think we should deny that there are plenty of other religions on the earth that have done a lot of human good. And all religions, to some degree, have done a lot of bad in the name of good. So this is not saying and claiming that Christianity is the only thing that has produced anything good in the world that, it, that helps people, etc., what I'm saying is that all the other religious leaders have died and they've left a philosophy, a way of life, a theology, et cetera, behind. Christ didn't just leave that behind. What, what did he leave behind? He left behind himself. He left his Holy Spirit to be put into the people of God so that the people of God would live the same kind of Christ-like lives in the earth, doing the same kinds of things for the same kinds of reasons that Jesus does. And so he tells us here in the church, he says, get after it. I'm telling you, because Jesus came back from the dead, it's a guarantee to us. We also are going to come back from the dead. So what we do in this life right now matters. It makes a difference. And yes, in one sense, I, of course I want crowns and I want to build up treasures. All that stuff is, is good because I'm a competitive human being. But at the end of the day, what drives me the most, I think is what drives you the most also. And that's this, that knowing that there are thousands and millions and billions of people who if they were to die now, would die and be separated from God for all of eternity. And what he's saying is, God, the Spirit, is bringing you the power of Jesus to live the same kind of life that Jesus will. And so get on mission, knowing that you've got incredible things that are coming to you in the future. There's a whole lot that you can endure right now. There's a whole lot you can sacrifice. There's a whole lot you can give up. You don't have to be solely consumed with your income and my empire that I'm building. I don't have to be consumed with what, just what my kids will get with an inheritance. I can be consumed with God. I want to get you and I want to get others in, 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 into introductions to you all over the globe because God has said this, I'm going to take care of your needs. Seek first the kingdom and all these other things that we rightfully think about, plan for, work towards, all those are going to be taken care of. So for those of you, Scripture is referred to as, it says the harvest is plentiful, 
but the laborers. Those who labor for kingdom work. The, the laborers, they're few. For all of you who are laborers. Please hear what he says. Your labor is not in vain. And if you choose to live a life that is on mission, meaning in the most honoring, respectful, loving way, getting the gospel message into the hands of those who would receive it. If someone doesn't want to hear it, don't share it. Honor them. Respect them. There's a whole lot of people who do want to hear it. And so share it. Get it across. Live your life in such a manner that you are leaning in, yes, to the body of Christ, but you're always facing out, looking for those who don't have the same hope. Your labor will not be in vain. What you sacrifice now will not be in vain. What you give up now, I somehow believe God is going to restore to you in a manner in the future that will far outweigh what you will get right now. So church, here's what I would say. God has gathered his people. He has brought us here on this particular day at this particular time. At this particular moment in not not just our nation's history, but in our city's history, in, in your history. God has brought us together at this time. And I believe he is saying the same thing to us now that he said through Paul to the Corinthian church. And that is, don't get so consumed with your own life that you forget about the mission. And if you live on mission, I will make it worth your while. I love being a part of this church. I love being able to pray for you, think about you, to see you. I love being challenged by you. I am grateful God put me here at this time in our church's history. I love you. Now let's go live for God's glory.